Hello, everybody. On this special episode of NC Raw, we welcome Richard Sneed, Principal Chief of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians, to the table to have a conversation with us about recovery and kind of his vision for uh, both our community and the reservation and kind of what he sees happening. It was a super insightful uh, conversation. The guy is full of wisdom. Um, he was very open with us about his um, personal experience with substance use and um, what that looked like and felt like. So it was a, a pretty in-depth conversation. He's an awesome cat. I totally enjoyed sitting down with him. He's a, he's a true leader in our community. So give some love to Principal Chief Richard Sneed. The opinions expressed in this podcast are the views of the NCR team and the individuals interviewed. We do not consider ourselves to be mental health professionals. Our mission is to explore the various pathways to recovery and to give a voice to those affected by or involved in the care of substance use disorders. Some content may be mature for younger audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. Ready, set, go. Principal Chief Sneed. Yeah. It's a pleasure to meet you, sir. Honored to be here. I and Caleb would agree. I think I'm grateful that you would take the time out of your busy schedule to sit down and have a conversation with us. Um, about recovering some things that are happening on the reservation and um, look forward to hearing from you what you what you have to share well i appreciate the invitation it's always great to be here he's been so, ta- he's been talking you up for months man he uh, has yeah well for i mean what <laughs> almost a year six, yeah at least six months no when we first started i, I mentioned the chief yeah. coming on yeah um so just to get everybody loosened up a little bit here and um break down any kind of barriers we may have Chief, is is it true? Now I'm not I'm not saying I don't know I'm not saying I don't know where he's going. I've got your back. I've got your back on this. I've got you back on this. This is good. Is it true that you sometimes wear makeup? Yes, sometimes that's true. Okay. Now the reason I ask that is because everybody, (laughs) I have makeup too as well. See, so if you're going on camera, you have to have exactly. Thank you. All right, good. Anyways, I just want to make that point. And I wanted to be clear: when you're going on camera, sometimes you need it. (laughs) (laughs) Today, the camera is way at the end of the table. (laughs) Way at the end of the table. You have nothing, nothing to worry about. So, um, in conversations, there's a lot of stuff going on. 
uh, both in our community, Jackson County, Swain County, um, in regards to substance use and mental health disorders. And, you know, one of the things that like the way that the media tends to work and the way that um, our minds kind of tend to work is that we always tend to like focus on and kind of shed light on some of the negative stuff that's happening in our community. You hear about the overdose deaths and you hear all about um, the epidemic that's taking place nationwide. And so I guess one of the things that I, I personally wanted to ask you to begin with was just like, I want to know like some of the things that are working specifically on the reservation. Like what, what, what are you guys doing um, that you're seeing like some positive results from? Cause I think that like, I think that the wave is shifting knowing you guys mm -hmm. for like a couple years now, year and a half, working with you guys very closely like uh, we're seeing a shift in some of the things that are, that were previously taking place if you could maybe like sure. talk a little bit well i think it's important to, to touch on uh, you know something you just said in your comments nationwide right because in, in my travels that you know almost without fail a question that i get when someone well, where are you from uh well cherokee north carolina well tell me about that place well it's an indian reservation First question, you well, what's what's the drug problem like? I said, it's the same as it is everywhere else. You know, we're not unique in that way, right? It's, it's the same as it is everywhere else. Uh, I think where, where the shift is, and I agree with you because, and in fact, I was just discussing this with somebody yesterday saying, I think that there is, like with, with every um, epidemic that comes along, there's that initial spike. There's there's kind of the, the shock that comes uh, after it initially hits. And then... Uh, as human beings, we spring into action, right, to try to deal with it. And I think the biggest shift that's come in, in this particular epidemic that should have come years ago, when we talk about uh, substance abuse disorder, um, is that we're dealing with human beings. And that, sh that shift should have come a long time ago. You know, we, we have been uh, wrapped up in, in a mindset and, uh, and an ideology in this country for well over 50 years, I think uh, Richard Nixon was was the first president to declare the you know an official war on drugs, mm -hmm. but it goes you know even further back than that. Anslinger, uh, you know, when he started the, I think what went on on to become the ATF or DEA, it was all about uh, demonizing the people who were associated with with substance abuse, and the bigger picture is that that you know we have to begin to address. You mentioned in your comment as well, mental health. And right, so, so the, the issues of why do people use, nobody starts out or sets out to be addicted, right? And so uh, digging deeper and asking the questions of, of other human beings, what happened in your life? Help me understand your story. Help me understand where you've come from so that I can better understand how I can help you. Uh, I think that's the shift that has come, and it's the shift that has, we've needed in this country for at least the last 30 years. I think the first, when, when Nixon made his declaration, uh, that was a shock and awe declaration as well, right? Um, and it set a mindset in this country that 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 if you are addicted, you're a bad person and you need to be punished. And the response from from the powers that be and the authorities is that the response always has to be punitive. We know that doesn't work, right? So we, so we're the most industrialized country on the planet, and we have more people in prison than any other country on the planet. It doesn't work. And so uh, the mindset shift that, that has come has needed to come. And I think that the reason it has come is because uh, initially with, with the pill epidemic and then the shift to heroin, uh, it has impacted middle-class white America. 
when it was an inner city problem, when it was a, uh, an African-American problem or a Hispanic problem or even a Native American problem, it's not our problem. But, you know, addiction, it, it knows no boundaries, right? And, and when this impacted working middle class Americans and their kids, all of a sudden, you know, this, this, you heard a different um, narrative coming from the powers that be. I remember being at a, an opioid summit in Asheville several years ago, and it was put on by the U.S. Attorney's Office. And all of these people, it was interesting to me, because I'm just kind of sitting back, taking this all in. And it was interesting to me, U.S. attorneys, DEA agents, FBI agents, all, all of these keynote speakers who were coming up were all the, you know, the same mantra, we can't arrest our way out of this. And I'm sitting there thinking, that's all you've tried to do for the last 50 years. <laughs> I'm glad it shifted. And I think we're in a good place now um, where, where we can actually see some real change. Chief, I want to ask you, uh, if you don't mind sharing with us, how have you been affected um, personally? Well, my uh, my youngest son, I, I've, my wife and I have five children, um, two grandchildren, one on the way. And uh, our youngest son, you know, went through a period about three years worth of, of uh, addiction. And uh, it was... Uh, it was heartbreaking. Uh, it was devastating to our family. Uh, sleepless nights, lots of tears, uh, lots of heartache. You know, uh, thankfully he's in a good place now. I mean, that was, uh, um, but but that took you know sending him to treatment three different times. You know, uh, and and just never knowing from day to day, coming home, what to expect. Mm -hmm. And there's just that uncertainty and that anxiety. So you know, so you go through your whole day dealing with everything that you have to deal with in the workplace and, and with the job, and, and then you, you come home to just insanity, you know, because you just never know mm -hmm. what to expect. I mean, uh, uh, I remember him sneaking out uh, like every night, uh, coming back two, three o'clock in the morning, four in the morning, five in the morning, and just being completely out of it, disoriented, and, and just, uh, just, I mean, unhinged. How and old is he? He's 17 now. Okay, yeah. wow, so he yeah. started really early mm -hmm. too, yeah. wow. Um, I was talking to Caitlin on the way up here, and uh, you've just got such a body of work, um, obviously being in Marines, mm -hmm. um, being a teacher, mm -hmm. uh, being in the vice chief's office. I mean, you've uh, a pastor of a church mm -hmm. for several years. Um, you've, you've been leading for so long by serving. Um, what do you see, like, right now in the position that you're in? Uh, I've seen the, the series that you've done the other day. What was the point of we're trying to do that. Like, I understand you're trying to um, break down barriers and bring people in and, and, and open up these conversations and everything, but the four-part series. And did you get to see any I of did. this? Yeah. I yeah. Did. Can well, you explain a little bit of that? Sure. So I'm, I'm a firm believer that, that education and information really sets, you know, sets a, a bound up mind free right now. Certainly there will always be, I did a talk yesterday um, with the Harris uh, management team on leadership. And I said, listen, there will always be people on the fringe that you're not going to reach to the far right or to the far left, but they're not the majority. I mean, they're they are a very small minority. They're usually very vocal and very opinionated, uh, but they're not the majority. The majority of people are toward the center, and if you can get good information to them to start to change um, long-standing mindsets that exist. So, for example, you know the, the point that I made earlier about you know everything being punitive. I, st I remember one time I was at a community club, and it's been a couple years ago is when I was in the vice chief's office, and, and uh, at the end of the meeting, uh, a tribal elder uh, said, well, I tell you what, we need to lock up all these druggies. And I mean, it flew all over me, you know, and, and I stood up and I said, I'm going to address that. And I went on about a 20-minute 
not a rant, <laughs> but you know, about a 20 minute discourse. And it was educational of why that doesn't work. And I said, at the end of the day, these are our sons and our daughters, husbands, wives, moms, dad. These are our community members. These are our family members and we can't throw them away. And so by my objective with all of the videos that we do, it's just simply that I'm, I'm always constantly in educator mode. You know, uh, that's always my heart is to, is to educate and to equip. And so uh, the point of the videos is, to, is hopefully to to change people's minds. And I recognize that there will be those that will always disagree, that will always be oppositional, and I will probably never change their mind. But I also recognize that the majority of people are reasonable. You know, and as I said, the truth, the truth always right down the middle. Yeah. It's never off to the fringes. It, it, it never is. And so if you speak to the middle, I think you're going to speak to the majority of, of the people in our community. Yeah, I think when you approach it with a kind of respectful, not like out of like, I'm trying to prove your side wrong, mm -hmm. but just approaching it with like, hey, this is how I feel. And this is why I feel this way um, from a place of respect and from a place of honesty mm -hmm. um, and compassion. It's more receptive. It's even for those kind of fringe ends of the spectrum that you spoke of to receive that message. It's not something that shifts or changes overnight either. Yeah. No, it's by continuing the conversation by sitting down and going in front of the schools and talking on a regular basis mm -hmm. like you do or having these podcasts on a regular basis and showing those different individuals who have been affected and having conversations. Um, eventually, we can yeah. all come together to like a common common ground regardless sure. of, of what that is. And, and, and to your point, I mean, in, in one of the, one of the uh, uh, ideas I put forward yesterday in my discussion on leadership was I said, look, it is imperative that you listen as intently to your adversary as you do your allies. It's a very dangerous thing. But people don't want to hear that. Uh, but you need to, <laughs> yeah. because your adversary knows something that you don't. Yeah. Right. And I know something that my adversary doesn't know. And to your point, if we can meet on, on the field of, of mutual respect, and I can respect you as another human being, knowing that we, we will go away from the conversation, there will be things that we still disagree on, but almost without fail, we will find things that, commonalities that we agree on. And I think what tends to happen is we find that there are more things that we agree on than we disagree on. But that only comes from discourse. And you know, we mentioned earlier in our conversation, it's a great time to be alive. The technology we have at our disposal is phenomenal. It's amazing. Look what we're doing right here, right? Mm -hmm. This is great. But at the same time, you can use this technology in a very irresponsible manner to drive a greater wedge between people and to, to drive discourse and to drive, uh, you know, just stirring the pot and keeping things in chaos. But there has to be voices of reason on, on every issue and certainly on this issue, this issue, because this issue impacts every family in the country. There's no one that hasn't been impacted by it. Yeah. Have you always been a natural leader? Growing up, you know, I addressed that yesterday too. I said, you know, I, I people used to ask this, you know, the, the the age old question: Are leaders born or are they made? And of course, the answer is yes, right? It's both. I think everyone has the potential for leadership, and leadership can be developed. And there's a couple ways to learn it. You can go school of hard knocks, uh, which is usually uh, ego driven and pride driven. Which in my 18, 19, 20s, you know, in, in my time in the Marine Corps was very much ego driven. Um, and, and as you get knocked down multiple times and you figure out that, hey, I really don't know everything, uh, and you start to pull back and go, this is painful. I'm going to start to listen to other people and, and maybe uh, think before I act and certainly think before I speak. Uh, but that was, that was the school of hard knocks way of going about it. Um, but I think everyone has the potential for leadership. But at the same time, leadership isn't for everybody. Um, leadership is a lonely place. 
leadership can be a very painful place. Um, uh, leadership will teach you that people that you think you can trust, you can't. Um, leadership teaches a lot of stuff about yourself too. I mean, because I think when you, when you put yourself out there and that's really what you're doing, you're making yourself very vulnerable and you're putting yourself out there for everybody to have their opinion about you as well. And that's painful. Yeah. You know, so definitely vulnerable to criticism, but as, oh, long as, as long as you can like accept that criticism and learn from it yep. and apply it in a positive way and grow from it, mm -hmm. I think it's crucial, man. Do uh, you mind sharing just a little bit of your story, chief? Which part? <laughs> in, your, in, your, in your uh, early Wilder days, like oh well, gosh, I mean, you know, uh, you know, I, I think my story is not much different than uh, a lot of American kids that were growing up. You know, I was I was born uh, in the late '60s and and grew up in the '70s, and uh, I remember looking good, by the way. Thank you, appreciate that. So, uh, <laughs> CrossFit, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, I remember I've always been uh, somebody who just observes, and I think it's interesting because. Uh, my names, like so, Richard Gregory Sneed. So, so Richard means powerful leader, and Gregory means one who is watchful and alert. And and my names kind of wow. really fulfill kind of how I've turned out as a person. I always just kind of sit back and take things in, evaluate, uh, assess, analyze, and then form an opinion and then act. And and uh, I remember from a very young age. I remember. Uh, observing that where I was living in New Jersey, my mom was on again, off again, single mom. And we lived in an apartment complex and there was a whole pack of us kids who all ran around suburban New Jersey. You know, I was born in Cherokee, but mom and dad, I never knew my dad. They got divorced when I was just a baby. Mom took my sister and I to New Jersey. And I remember uh, realizing that of all these kids in this apartment complex, nobody had a dad. I remember observing that. I'm like, nobody's got a dad. <laughs> you know, And so I think that, uh, that really contributes to that, that, that brokenness of family. I think it's imperative, uh, and, and that's not just my opinion. I mean, the, the data and the evidence bears it out that, you know, a child raised in a two-parent home uh, is going to fare better in life, uh, you know, than, than one who is in a single family home. And I don't say that in judgment. My mom was a single mom for most of, you know, my years growing up, and she worked very hard. She worked and went, went to school and became a school teacher and, you know, did just did phenomenally for the circumstances. But... Uh, um, I think that that certainly contributed to, um, you know, my early years of, of uh, getting involved in, in uh, you know, substance abuse and, and just, you know, wild behavior because we were just a bunch of wild kids, you know, all of our moms were working and we had all of this free time on our hands. So mm -hmm. um, that really contributed to how I ended up back in Cherokee because I got to the point where my mom couldn't do anything with me. I mean, you know, and, and uh, I'd been to rehab once and... Uh, came out I stayed clean for about seven or eight months started using again and uh, they were going to send me to another rehab and I was willing to go I, I remember you know I had a counselor the outpatient counselor that I saw on a I think it was every other week I was willing to go and uh, I thought I would go back to where I was before which was looked very much like a ski lodge it was up in the mountains it was kind of a cool place but the next place they took me to and I was only supposed to go for a refresher course for a week and I get there, and it kind of looked like one flew over the cuckoo's nest. I was looking for a nurse. <laughs> I was looking for a nurse ratchet, you know. And, and uh, but I remember. I mean, I remember vividly walking through there, and my mom was with me, and we were going to meet with the counselors. And I was having a conversation with myself in my head, like, "Wow, this place is scary looking. I don't want to stay here, but you can do this, man. It's just a week. You can do this." How old was you? Fourteen. Okay. And wow. uh, and so uh, we sit down and, and we meet with the counselors, and and then. Uh, 
okay, well, Mr. Sneed, we're going to go talk and, and uh, we'll be back shortly. Okay. So I'm sitting there making small talk with my mom and they come back in. Well, Mr. Sneed, we think your problem's severe enough. You need to stay. I'm like, hey, I'm great. Got my bag. I'm ready to stay a week. No, six weeks. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember saying, no, I'm, no, I'm not staying here six weeks. And and even in, in all, you know, my, my craziness and everything else, I was always respectful to my mom. I never, never, ever, ever talked back to my mom. You can call her right now. She's, she'll tell you. I never talked back to her. I was never disrespectful. And that was like the one time I, I, I kind of, I said, no, I'm not doing it. And she said, well, Rich, I think you need to stay. They're professionals. And, and uh, this was the days of tough love. You remember, you know, tough love. That was like, you know, you're going to do this. And so she said, well, either you go do this or you go live with your dad. And I didn't even know my dad. And I thought, she's not going to send me to live with my dad. I'm like, fine, I'll go live with my dad. All right, let's go. So we left, and we drove home, and she got on the phone and called my dad, and three days later, I was in charity. <laughs> <laughs> so she wasn't kidding. It, it all turned out all right. Though. Right, right. <laughs> um, it's funny now. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't funny then. Uh, it wasn't funny at all then. It was heartbreaking for me then, but it, it all turned out okay. I know we don't have a lot of time here, and there's so much I want to talk about. Like, you got anything? I, I was going to just ask about, you hit on, like, a valuable skill set is that observational mm -hmm. um, to be able to kind of, like, sit back without reacting, sit back without responding, and kind of, like, assess mm -hmm. what is taking place in front of you, whether it's in, as a leader or in the classroom or wherever it is. Um, that's an extremely valuable skill I, I that I learned at an early age myself through, like, work and retail sales and having to attend to customers and kind of see what was going on in the background as I was and um but it sounded like it came natural to you as a young as a young boy like you vividly remember um that nobody had had a father figure in their household and so like looking back now and knowing what you know now how would you say that that how would you say the best way to like cultivate and kind of like groom that skill set would be for a young individual, specifically these days when they're all glued to the devices? Mm -hmm. I think it's a greater challenge for young people now. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a time where there were three TV channels, mm -hmm. right? There was NBC, ABC, and CBS. And if you could get on UHF, you could get channel 13, and it was the public broadcast station, right? So you had four maybe. You had cartoons for an hour and a half after school, and then that was it. And you had two hours of cartoons on Saturday. Other than that, we were outside running around and we were engaging. There was a lot of human interaction. Mm -hmm. And now it's, it's, it's not real interaction. A text message is not human interaction. What we're doing right now is real interaction. You know? And, and um, it, when we talk about uh, shifting the mindset and shifting the culture, and that was something I talked to the group about yesterday, you know, people, we say in Cherokee all the time, we talk about our culture, our culture. And I ask people, I said, well, what does that mean? And they say, uh, well, you know, our language. I'm like, well, that's part of it. What do you mean by our culture? Well, it's our traditional foods. Okay, that's part of it. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's our customs and traditions. That's part of it. I said, I would submit to you that a culture is a value system. It's an intangible and what it, the foundation and really what it comes down to is how we treat one another as human beings, right? And so in this particular instance, there's a culture that surrounds substance abuse and addiction and how we treat people who are suffering with this, right? And the way that you change that mindset is you hear the human story. I mean, the human story is so powerful. You know, one of the things when I was teaching, I used to do, and, and the way I kind of snuck it in with my students because it was mostly male students and you can't, 
You can't say, hey, guys, I'm going to let you listen to this story and it's really emotional. It's going to be, you know, it's going to make you feel real sensitive and all this, you know, was to say, guys, listen, in the day and age that we live in where there's all this distraction and your attention span is probably five seconds long at a time, it's very important that you cultivate uh, the ability to listen and to really hear. And in order to do that, you've got to block everything else out and you have to listen. So I would, I would have them listen to stories on The Moth. I don't know if you're familiar with The Moth. It's an NPR broadcast. And it's just people telling their stories. And uh, I mean, it's phenomenal. I, I, I come away from a story that I, listen, that I hear on The Moth, and sometimes I'm laughing. Sometimes I'm crying. Sometimes I'm just sitting there feeling like, oh, my God, I just, you know, like I just got run over by a bus. It, you know, and I'm blown away at, at, at what human beings go through. And they come out on the other side and they're, you know, they're stronger and, the, you know, and it just blows me away. But um, the power of story, that breaks down barriers because you, you don't get to look at another human being in the face and listen to their story of their struggle and the adversity and, and how they came through that. You'll never see them the same way again. You can't. Mm -hmm. And so we do this thing where it, I could, you know, if, if someone is, well, look, at them, they're a drug addict. But if you hear their story it changes everything yeah right. that's one that, of the, oh go sorry ahead. No. go ahead well I, I mean that was the whole time that you've been talking I, i've been listening and just i guess my question for you is uh you know did you dream of being where you're at now like whenever you was young before all before you know the the struggle the addiction that you went through before all that like did you dream of being in a leadership role because like I didn't know all that about you. I knew about your son. I knew that, but I never knew that personally about you. And it's just like for me, like when I was in school and stuff, I was on, you know, journalistic leadership council. Like I dreamed of doing something big for my community and whatnot. And then, you know, I struggled, but just seeing, you know, um, you persevered through the things that you went through. And now, you know, like you're serving people in so many different ways. You know, I just, uh, I just, what would you encourage one of the listeners who might be on here, you know, that feels like maybe they're in recovery, but they feel stuck or they don't feel any importance or they feel like they can't do anything, you know, like they're never going to be able to excel or, you know, or, or be able to do what they used to dream about. Sure. They don't have that confidence. Mark. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's so two, two parts of the question. So, so the first part did I, did I ever dream of being here? Um, I think, always in my mind and in my heart i always believed i had a purpose i didn't know necessarily what that was right. but i always believed that i was destined to do something great i've always believed that they had no idea i just knew and i don't know why or how i knew that i think maybe it was because you know my mom loved me a lot you know and 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 so that that helped me to know that i mattered and that i had purpose didn't know what the purpose was didn't right. I, I just kind of knew <laughs> Just always knew I was going to do something great. Didn't know what it was. And it, it, it blows my mind some days when, you know, like, for example, I'm, I, I called my mom and I said, uh, I just wanted to tell you, I just got done. Uh, I, was, I chaired a CDC meeting today down in Atlanta. And I said, I was sitting there thinking, there's this, all these people around the table, like these really high ranking government officials. And I'm leading this meeting and directing the meeting. And then <laughs> when it's all over, the, the, the deputy director of the CDC comes up to me. She goes, gee. You run a really good meeting. That was very efficient. Well done. Thank you, ma'am. You have a great day. You know, <laughs> you know, or you know, a couple of weeks ago, I'm sitting in Elizabeth Warren's office. You know, just after she texts me, Elizabeth Warren texts me. I'm sitting there. I'm getting text messages. 
hey, honey, look, Elizabeth Warren texts me, you know, those <laughs> things like that kind of, I kind of have to slap myself every now and again, like, this is crazy. But um, I guess the, the, in response to your, to your second question, how would I encourage somebody who's just, you know, feeling like, gosh, you know, I've, I've blown it, I've gone too far, is failure's not final. You know, mm -hmm. failure's, failure's just an opportunity for growth. And one of the things I used to say, every opportunity that I've had, and I've had multiple opportunities to speak to the entire staff of Cherokee Central Schools, elementary, middle, and high school, all at one time. And, and one of the things I always say when I get that opportunity is I say, please, please, please teach our kids how to fail. Now, that seems like an oxymoron, right? That's like, yeah, I swear, yeah. we yes. always say stuff yeah. like that. I mean, <laughs> yeah. You've got to learn how to deal with failure. Life, is, life is all about dealing with failure bouncing back from failure and and the problem is in the day and age that we live in now when you fail right and we all will fail mm -hmm. there are there's a host of people waiting around with their devices to put your failure out there oh, right in order to see right so so that and think about it it's a place of fear because really what they're doing is is i don't want the light to be shined on me so i'm going to shine the light on this person who has failed mm -hmm. and it's a, it's a very dangerous thing and then everybody kind of piles on you know, and, and I would say failure is not final. It's an opportunity for growth. Know this, you will fail, but it's an opportunity to say, okay, what did I do right? What did I do wrong? What can I do better the next right. time? Come on. You know, that's, that's really all it is. And, and I mess up all the time. We all mess up all the time. You know? No, not you, G. Right. Yeah, but, but, you know, I think that the bigger, the bigger, the bigger uh, issue or the most important thing, I think, is to own it when, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I did that. That was me. You know, I, rem I remember when I got caught for, I got busted on a urinalysis when I was in the Marine Corps. Not proud of that, but I did. And I remember um, I remember when uh, I, I got to work that, that morning and I'd been out all night, you know, and, and uh, uh, I was just trying to get through, you know, because I mean, I don't, I'd, I'd only had about an hour of sleep and, and uh, we had formation and, and then the platoon sergeant's like, all right, but, you know, fallout, carrot plan today. I'm like, good, you know, so, oh, wait, 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 come back. We got urinalysis. I'm like, oh, man, I knew I was busted. And I remember uh, it took like six weeks. You know, this is the 80s, so it took a lot longer. <laughs> it's not like now. You fail a drug test now. It's coming back like yeah, that yeah. in that minute. You failed. And, um, <laughs> and about six weeks later, I, you know, I, I come back from lunch and like, Sneed, report to the first sergeant. I'm like, I knew what it was. And I go up there and I knock on the door and, sir, Lance Corporal Sneed reporting his order. Get in here. You know, I go in there, you know, standing stand at attention. If you've ever seen uh, Full Metal Jacket, yeah. mm -hmm. the first sergeant of First Mains Battalion at Camp Pendleton in 1988 looked just like him. <laughs> Acted just a little wiry guy, just you know, yelling and screaming. And he, I remember. I mean, I've got my wife hates it because I got a memory mind like a steel trap. I remember everything. I remember what he said. He's reading the charge sheet on such and such a date. Said name Marine did knowingly and willfully use cocaine. Suppose you're going to tell me some story about how somebody put something in your drink, huh? And I said, <laughs> no, sir, I did it. What? I said, no, sir, I did it. Oh, well, sit down. <laughs> <laughs> I totally disarmed because I, and, and in that moment, I realized he probably because at that time, methamphetamine was just rampant in Southern California. I was I was out of Camp Pendleton and there were Marines and sailors all over the place that, that were using methamphetamine. And, uh, and I remember in that moment thinking he's probably heard every excuse in the book and it was probably refreshing for him to have somebody just say, yeah. no, I did it. But that's just how I was raised. My mom and my dad both raised me that way. And, uh, you know, immediately the, the, his, his demeanor changed and he, and he was like, why'd you do it? 
where was your head at? I'm like, you know, I won't tell you what I said, but he's like, you know, son, you're in a lot of trouble. And, and I'm, yes, sir, I'm aware of that. But when I had to go up for office hours and go up before the colonel, that first sergeant was right there advocating for because they could have kicked me out, you know. And he was advocating for me, saying, sir, I think we got this, this one salvageable. I think he's a good Marine. He messed up, you know. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, back then they just throw you out. You know, you're, you're just out. But, uh, yeah, so I was very grateful uh, for the opportunity to, uh, to not get thrown out. But, yeah, I mean, that was one of those things. Talk about a fall from grace, man. I mean, I was, uh, I was an honor grad out of boot camp. I, you know, I mean, I was top dog. I mean, I was all gung-ho and everything else. And I, I, I did something really stupid, you know. And it was, uh, there were some really harsh consequences for it. But when it happens, like, yeah, it was me. I did it. What are the consequences? I'm ready to accept that. So. And grow from it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, we're getting short on time now. Chief, what... I know a lot of times uh, I see uh, not just you, but other, uh, some uh, some of our other leaders get attacked, and they say, "Well, y'all need to be doing this, and you need to be." I want to ask you, what do you need from us as community members? How can we make your job easier um, uh, as far as this uh, drug epidemic goes? And I know that we're we're trying to we have this podcast, we have Res Hope, we're trying to. But what other things can people do that's that's listening? Sure, I think that the most important thing is is what you just said in your comments there, uh, it's, it's the attitude in the heart that you have, which is to say, what can I do? Mm -hmm. um, oh. I will say this, and I've said this for years, even when I was running for office, because this is not a new issue we're facing. I've said all along, it's like, this is, there's no silver bullet for this, guys. If there was, somebody would have fired it already. Mm -hmm. um, this is a community-wide problem. It's going to take a community-wide approach. Um, one of the things that that is counterproductive is when People have that um, as their their opening salvo, right? What are you going to do to fix this? Mm -hmm. As if there were something we could do to snap our fingers to fix it. We are doing everything that we can do, and it's it's a it's a holistic approach. There, there's no one thing, right? The one thing approach was lock them up. That's right. That's been the one thing approach for the last fifty years. Now, you know, we're taking the approach of um, outpatient care inpatient care, transitory care for you know, the, the, the uh, crisis stabilization unit um, for those folks who are like, I want to get help, but we don't have a bed for them yet. We can keep them a secured facility, keep them uh, under medical supervision if that's a, a pharmaceutically assisted treatment to keep them from going into withdrawals, whatever that is. Our syringe assistance program, which is doing phenomenal work. Mm -hmm. um, I, I had a and, and, and it's okay, you know, I, I can share this. I, I, had is, I took issue with uh, the op-ed piece that was in our newspaper, in the One Feather, because it was, um, you know, the, the opinion piece basically said, I disagree with, with the syringe assistance program because I feel like it's enabling people. And so I asked this gentleman who wrote it, I said, well, I have to ask you a question. I said, uh, did, you, did you research the program? Well, no. Did you call the program and ask for some data on what you know what what are their what are their benchmarks what are their goals and where are they in regard to achieving those goals? No, and I said so. You ha you have an opinion. You formed an opinion based on limited information. I said I'm not trying to beat you up on this. I've done that before, and I learned a long time ago that before I form an opinion, we all do it right. Something happens. Well, I'll tell you how I feel. I'll tell you what I think about that. Rather than do that again, it's that thing you pull back. Don't react. Let me get some more information. I said, it, it, it's fine. Everybody has an opinion, but it's more important to have an informed opinion. Mm -hmm. Because if you have an informed opinion, okay, oftentimes if I, if I will pull back and get some information, my initial reaction to something 
is wrong a lot. Whereas when I get more information, I'm like, oh, okay, now I understand what you're doing. So I pointed out to this gentleman, I said, did you know, and this was two months ago, I said, did you know that last month our syringe assistance program referred 18 people to treatment? Did you know? That's, yeah. that's big time right <laughs> yeah. there. I said, did you know that our return rate last month, this was two months ago, was over, it was uh, close to 75%. This last month, it was 102%. Wow. 102%. And, and they're seeing, I think they've got 154 clients. I said, these folks who, are, who need treatment are in daily contact with healthcare workers. I said, we are, we are trying to not only deal with the addiction portion of this, but we're trying to do harm reduction with the, there's an epidemic of hep C. Nobody's mm -hmm. talking about that, right? Because we look at the big issue and go, oh, well, uh, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's an opioid epidemic. Yeah, well, there's also a hep C epidemic. Mm -hmm. And that endocarditis, the, yeah. the heart infection that's been killing mm -hmm. so many people. Right. Yeah, and, and to treat one person for hep C, $85,000. Yeah. One person. Uh, yeah, we just had um, Tracy Wolf and Earl Birchfield and her team come and speak to our Res Hope group last mm -hmm. week, well, the week before, about the hep C epidemic. And it's like, de it's declared now as an epidemic Correct. in Cherokee. So that means, you know, there's so many, the rise of cases have grown sub substantially. And so... People don't under like you said. They don't understand that. They don't. They just focus on the the drug problem. They don't look at the the other things that are going on, and then they don't understand how harm reduction is helping to get those people treatment or to to help prevent it from happening in the first place. You know, because um, I I mean it took me a while to understand what harm reduction was too, but now that I do know, one of the biggest questions uh, a lot of people have, Chief, is transitional housing and the. the the rundown motels and stuff that's that's around our reservation that could be used for things like that. Have y'all talked about doing something with those? Or yeah, trying to get yeah actually, uh, just uh, uh, Tuesday in uh, Lands Acquisition, yeah, there's actually a property we're looking at. I think it's, uh, I want to say it's like 60. I don't want to say what property it is because the price will go up. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, but yes, yeah, short answer, yes. Uh, we're, okay. looking at, we're looking at a motel, and it's actually a nicer one, but, but it's for sale, and I think it's uh, 16 or 17 units. And our our thought on it is we you know we're we're building the uh, the women's transitional uh -huh. for for uh, moms and uh, ladies coming uh, out of treatment and, and into recovery over at the old uh, children's home site, but we don't have anything for for the men. So uh, that's that was our the discussion we had in, in lands acquisition the other day. Okay. So yes. What are you thinking? We got, we are going to have something for the men. Yeah, we are. But um, it's coming, no, I was going to ask about uh, emergency housing mm -hmm. because that's a huge issue with, I know a lot of people coming into recovery is, you know, one's employment, mm -hmm. but then the other's housing. And I mean, we've had people that we, you know, have called us From no treatment. place to go, yeah. you know, don't have any, I mean, and it's like, we can't refer them to the Ernestine walking stick shelter because you have to have some kind of domestic going yeah. on there's you know just and sometimes it's just like i think it's like summertime or, or mm -hmm. fall and it's like well i don't know i'm, I'm glad it's not freezing outside but right. you know and that that i hate i didn't say that but it, it, it sometimes that's how you have to look at it and it's like i don't know I just wanted to ask about emergency yeah, so, housing because so we used to have it, right? We did. And and so there's a couple issues, and, and this is one of those things where if we're going to tell the truth about the issue, let's tell the truth about the issue. So a true transitional housing program operated correctly is supposed to operate this way. 
people come into the transitional housing, it's supposed to be a six month window. Okay. And they're supposed to work closely with public health and human services, with social workers. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, They're supposed to work closely with the school system, with the kids. But the other thing they're supposed to do is they are actually supposed to charge charge a small amount of rent. Mm -hmm. That rent is supposed to go into an account. All right. And, And we're basically saving the money for them. Right in an escrow mm-hmm. account, and at the end of six months, they have enough money at that point so to pay housing. first month, last month, down, and Ooh. and yeah. and deposit. Right. What has happened historically? And I'm not pointing fingers. I'm just this is just what has happened historically. In the past, someone would call an elected official. Well, don't charge them. Well, you're not helping them. Mm. There's a program in place for a reason. Right. To follow the program. Right. So what ended up happening was there were you would have folks that would go into transitional housing and they would never transition out of transitional housing. So then there, by by following the program, that means every six months there should be yes. a, an apartment or whatever opening up mm. for somebody else to come into. We're supposed to be sure. empowering people to get back on their feet. Right. Right, we're supposed to be equipping them to, to get right. back on their feet. So uh, we have tried repeatedly. Well, I didn't say that. You did. Um, <laughs> for the record, noted. The, the now, e- now yeah, the case calling us. That e word did not come out of my mouth. Um, but uh, we, we've looked at, at several different properties for the purpose of transitional housing, um, with the understanding. And I've said uh, to other elected officials, if we do this. You cannot interfere. You've mm-hmm. got to let this thing operate the way it's supposed to operate. If you truly want to help our people, you got to let the program run the way the program's supposed to run. Uh, you know, one of the things that we've got to have a conversation about a couple of times is whenever I got up to apply for the removal ride and I was in my feelings and I was kind of <laughs> a little pissed off and everything. And and I was kind of looking for the chief to, to for him to bend the rules and say, well, we're going <laughs> to let him, you know, we're going to bypass this rule here. And, let it, and I'm so glad that he didn't yeah. because I wouldn't be where I'm at today mm-hmm. had that not happened. That's and right. for the record, chief doesn't bend the rules for anybody. There you go. <laughs> there you go. But that's what, I, you know, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's I mean, I'm what sure a our lot community, of people, yeah, right. come in thinking like, right. well, he's my chief. He should do what I want him exactly. to do. Especially if he wants my vote. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Well, but that's, yeah, and unfortunately, so so on that note, somebody asked me, I was on a, a Q&A panel in D.C., and I love sharing this story. They said, uh, uh, you know, what's what's the greatest challenge facing tribal leaders today? And I said, to answer that question, you have to understand the history of tribal nations and how they were treated by the federal government. It's It's been a, um, a guardian ward, paternalistic system that's been in place for 150 or so years, um, and... At some point, when when self-determination came into play, the federal government basically said, okay, you tribes, go ahead and govern yourself. And I said, much like an abusive relationship, if you've been abused, 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 you tend to do what was done to you. Mm. And so our elected officials, we in in Indian country, adopted the model that was imposed upon us. We we abandoned our traditional ways, and we adopted the model that was imposed upon us, which is a paternalistic um, you need me. I, I, I have control of the resources and I'll divvy the resources out and you keep me in my position of authority. And I said, so the biggest challenge facing elected officials today, tribal officials, is this. Am I going to perpetuate the paternalism or am I going to empower my people? Now, a politician will, will perpetuate paternalism. A leader will empower the people. Understanding that there are some folks that don't want to be empowered or equipped and that's kind of the, again, the like the fringe. fringe. Yeah. Can't yeah. do anything with them. You can continue to encourage them, help them all you can, but you cannot enable them. And uh, 
you know, that's maybe not a, a popular message, but it's true. Well, listen, Chief, you are a true leader. Well, thank and, you. Uh, I'm grateful to have you on. I don't want to keep you too late. Hey, can I say here. something real quick? Yeah. So I know, you know, earlier you said you grew up in the 60s and then... I was a baby Steve in the was, 60s. Yeah, I know, Thank right? You. Well, I mean, no, let me point this out. So when we were in Oklahoma, they, they asked, asked me where we were from, and I told them we're from the Eastern Band. And, oh, you guys are from where the chief, your chief has dark hair. Your, your chief's not white-haired. <laughs> I started laughing. Like, yeah? Just no, for men. That, that's yeah, just for men. Exactly right. That's, that's true transparency right that's there. Right. Yep. <laughs> so it makes you feel good. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> been, I've been using it for a few years now, Chief, just for men. Yeah, need I, to put a little bit on right now, actually. I think I started hitting it when I was about 32 or 35, <laughs> somewhere in there. <laughs> uh, hey, how's your fitness going? Not what as good of, as it used to be. kind of stuff you doing right now? Uh, I did power cleans, squats, and bench last night. So, Okay. But not as good as you. I don't have time like I used to, you know. And, and uh, I, in true story, last night I, I pull up to the gym, and I was sitting in the parking lot, answered a couple text messages, and then I just kind of closed my eyes for a minute. And the next thing you know, I woke up. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I fell asleep. <laughs> I fell asleep in the parking lot of the gym. Like, I get in there and work out, man. I got my workout in. But, yeah, I mean, it's I, I don't have, I mean, you know, before, you know, uh, before I got into office, I mean, I was doing CrossFit four and five days a week. Mm -hmm. uh, I was in the best shape of my life. And, and you know, now I'm, I'm lucky if I can get two, if I can get two days in, I'm happy. If I get three, that's a great week. What's, you know, what does a normal day look like in Cheeks? Life, meeting yeah. after meeting after meeting after meeting phone call phone call phone call text message meeting 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 i mean it's um you know and and so like next week we'll be in raleigh um so we're going to uh go down there and lobby for uh sports betting so we can get sports betting at our two casino properties so we'll go mm -hmm. lobby for that uh we'll go and uh lobby uh ncdot about some of these um bridge projects that they want to do and when they do these projects uh our fiber you know the, the, the tribes uh, part owner of Balsam West, our fiber, we own, you know, miles and miles and miles of fiber. We have to pay to move the fiber. It's very expensive. So we're going to go and, and, and uh, try to talk to NCDOT about that, uh, you know, about uh, if it's not a public safety issue, let's find a, a different project because one of the greatest needs uh, in, in Western North Carolina, uh, one of the things that I've been able to get accomplished in office is um, the tribes now member of the Southwest Commission, which is the Council of Governments. So the regional county governments uh, are all part of the Southwest, Southwest Commission. So the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians, as of 2018, is now a member of Southwest Commission. Almost without fail, every meeting, in number one or number two issue of discussion, rural broadband access and housing. Top two issues for the region. Every meeting. And so we're working hard through Balsam West and, and our partners to bring broadband access to Western North Carolina. And then we have NCDOT is, hey, I know there's nothing wrong with this bridge, but let's change the traffic pattern because it would look nicer if we did this. And that ends up costing us a lot of money that we could be using to deploy broadband into communities we're going to have to use to pay for moving our fiber. Getting that broadband to people is just vital at this day and age. It's, right? it's interesting. You know, I, I, I spoke with... Uh, some county commissioners and um, out in Graham County because Graham County is a tough, that's a tough place to get it to, right? So we have fiber out there already, but there's not enough population out there for uh, a large provider to come out and say, hey, we're going to blanket the area. So there's been some grants that have been awarded, it's, but it's going to be a patchwork, you know. But in speaking to the county commissioners, 
you know, they, they're going around the, their, their horseshoe there. And, uh, and, and everybody's talking about, you know, the need for broadband, the need for broadband. And I said, well, Chief Sneed, you know, we'd like to hear from you. And I, and I said, well, I was sitting back just listening to all of the comments. And it struck me how quickly our priorities have changed. If we were having this meeting 30 years ago, we would be discussing how vital it would be for us to get city sewer and city water into the communities. And now we're talking about broadband. And, and it is essential, especially in now it's, I'll say this, it's essential if it's used appropriately. Uh, granted, it's great for entertainment and everything else, and we probably spend more time uh, using it for entertainment than for educational purpose, purposes. That being said, North Carolina is moving to paperless schools, right? So everything's going to be electronic. There's not going to be books anymore. Everything's going to be on tablets or laptops. Well, that's all fine, good, and well if you're in Raleigh or Charlotte or Durham or, or you know, Winston-Salem. But most of, you know, probably 95 to 98 of the counties in in North Carolina are rural. Yeah. You know, you've got these very densely populated areas around, you know, the metro areas of, of, of Raleigh-Durham and, and Charlotte and Winston-Salem, but everybody else is fairly rural. So it's a great initiative, but I think it's one of those things that uh, it sounded great on paper. And yeah, let's roll that out. And it is good for the environment, but you have to have the infrastructure in place first. You can't you can't, it's kind of been done backwards. It's like, let's do this, and here's the date we want to do it by, but the infrastructure's not in place. Not yeah, yeah. I, I have, like, a few classmates, single mothers, kids, um, that, like, don't have access to it, and they're students at SCC, so, like, they literally have to coordinate their entire schedule, picking up the kids and daycare and this and that around when they can, when the what the library hours are mm -hmm. at SCC, so they can spend the day at the library working on their homework or sitting in the parking lot of McDonald's or say, yeah. so using their Wi-Fi yeah. for real <laughs> serious I mean I know people who do that yeah yeah, yeah I know people who do that <clears throat> speaking of Raleigh uh it's, I guess it's probably the last thing we get to talk about but Dr. Langer who I spoke to you about uh that's the director of uh, RCNC the recovery communities in North Carolina she uh started the hope squad down there back in uh October and went down there for some recovery coach training I was telling you about it um, it's a post overdose outreach, and uh, I really, I really see uh, a huge opportunity for us to have a. We have so many overdoses on the reservation. Um, once a month, they get the report, the police reports. They take a um, detective who, who's a volunteer now. They don't not getting paid for it, so they come, they get somebody that's had some training, some uh, recovery language training, know how to empower people and stuff. And the detectives go into a, a place wherever the residents at, check on them walk in, make sure there's no drugs out. If there's drugs out, as long as it's not like trafficking weight, they tell them to put their stuff up. Um, can we send a recovery coach or a peer support come here and talk to you? Yeah, you can. Go in and talk to them. Give them some, some brochures about Anna Lanishki. Just leave, I mean, sit there and listen to them. And I just seen even, that. Yeah, information on the needle exchange. Yeah. Like that. yeah. All that stuff, you know, and I just I feel like uh, I, we're not doing enough outside the box, you know, ideas and and. and and uh, programs, and I really think that it's a huge need for something like that. I think we definitely have a lot of, uh, there's a lot of people in recovery right now getting trained, like peer support training. You've seen some of the numbers about how many people are certified peer supports that aren't working? Yeah. It's like. I mean, it's so, it's very big, like mm -hmm. Asheville, Raleigh, that way, but over here it's really not. But that, you know, that could be a place for people to at least but get some numbers some are heart, higher in know? the western counties um, than they are in the eastern I, counties, I know. you know? So well, I think it's something that we, we should certainly look at adopting. And, and, you know, to your point about, you know, them going in, you know, and, and basically, hey, can we talk? I think that one of the um, 
the most important um, aspects of what we're doing right now. Like uh, I was talking to Vicki Bradley, our Secretary of Health and Human Services, and she said, uh, you know, one of the local churches donates little boxes, and in the boxes they'll have boxes for for women that will have healthcare products and feminine products and toothbrush and just you know personal care items, and then also boxes that just have like uh, you know like can of beanie weenies or you know just some crackers and stuff like that. And she said we give them to them, and she said. More than anything else, they they are so grateful that somebody cares, right? And I think what you're describing is again, it's it's moving away from that punitive aspect, and we're here to punish, and you're a bad person. To hey, I'm here to help you. Uh, I recognize that you've got you've got some issues going on right now, but I, I'm just here to listen, because I, I think you know we we would probably all of all of us would agree that you can't force somebody into recovery, right? It's it's got to be their decision. Certainly, you can. You can make the way easy for them, but at the end of the day, it's got to be their choice. Uh, and recognizing also that, especially when we're talking about folks who uh, are addicted to heroin uh, or meth, there's going to be relapses. You can't, you know, say, well, you had your chance. We, we've got to be, we've got to be there um, even when they fail, you know, and to pick them back up. So, what do you think about that? Though? I mean, because it, it really uh, fosters a better relationship between the community and the police, you know, because. <laughs> And you say it like you're from the, the hood, and the, the police. And the, <laughs> and the law but enforcement officers. It breaks Excuse down me. those barriers. <laughs> Builds trust. Well, I mean, that's what they're going to be saying. Oh, there's the police. You know? <laughs> I'll tell you what. If you, if you, will, bring, if you will bring uh, you know, a representative. She's from, going to be here in March. Excellent. Well, yeah, set up a meeting okay. Set up a meeting with my office and we'll, we'll make it happen. Okay. Outstanding. Thanks a bunch, Chief. Absolutely. You are Thanks a true leader, me. man. Amazing. Anything that we can do to support recovery on the reservation, Res Hope, NC Raw, please feel free to reach out to us. We're, we've got a slew of people who will be um, more than willing to volunteer for any type of program like that that Caleb speaks of. So Thanks. Well, we thank you. Thank you for having me. get you back on here soon. Yeah, yeah. I've enjoyed it. two-hour show. Excellent. I could sit here and talk for two hours. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it, sir. Thank You're you. awesome. Let's hang out. Let's grab a picture real quick. I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna wrap this thing up. Let's grab a picture. Okay. Thank you guys for tuning in. Good night. Good time.